It seems to me about a thousand years ago now, but when uh, our son Stephen was about two or three, he was a very curious, very busy little boy. And uh, one of the manifestations of that was that he would wander around the house using his uh, little fingers and hands to explore all kinds of things. Um, Push every button he could find, open drawers and cabinets, pull things off shelves, stick forks and knives into places where they shouldn't be stuck. Uh, It was a constant challenge just to keep up with him and kind of fun at times and scary at others. This was also the age when he was learning what one parenting writer calls basic German shepherd, uh, commands such as sit, stay, come here, stop, and most important of all, no. And so here he was going along quite blissfully in his uh, little toddler world, no boundaries, no restrictions, no barriers, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, the hammer began to drop. All of a sudden, he was told no in quite stern voice about an increasing number of things. Uh, No, you can't shove your finger in the light socket. No, you can't eat right out of the sugar bowl with a spoon. No, you cannot shove jelly beans up your nose. And on and on it went. In other words, into his kind of previously lawless, free spirit world, there began to appear some guidelines, some parameters, some things that were off limits, things that would bring him upon him the swift displeasure of his parents, actions that he would engage in, uh, from that point on, were no longer just situational in nature, they were relational in nature, and they were interpersonal in effect. Life changed for him in a dramatic way. All of a sudden, his daily routine included this whole new element called self-restraint. All of a sudden, he had to exert effort, real moral effort at reining himself in, at least as much as a toddler can manage. All of a sudden, acting on his desires and most natural feelings and inclinations became the subject of some consideration and reflection, at least at his age. And all this was perfectly illustrated to me one day when we had a little encounter over the sound system the stereo in our apartment. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that that sound system at the time was my pride and joy. Uh, It was an object of great idolatry for me, and uh, it was loud and pretty fancy and lots of knobs and switches and buttons and colorful lights. It was impressive, to me at least. And, of course, it was fascinating for a two-year-old boy uh, for whom it took every single ounce of self-restraint he had to not mess with it and not push those buttons. And I remember vividly one day walking into the living room where Stephen was standing inches away from the stereo cabinet, right before his face is this brightly lit, as I recall, red button, and he is mesmerized by this thing. And um, I walk in, I see him, and his little hand is kind of up there, and he's, he's just about to hit this button. He sees me walk in, and he looks at me, and I look at him, and he looks at me again, And I look at him, and I look him straight in the eye, and I said, as firmly as I could, I said, no. And there's a tiny little pause. (laughs) But there was something about that, that, that the fact that I had forbidden it, that made it virtually irresistible to him. And he slowly moved his little index finger forward, and he pushed that red button, and he looked me in the eye the entire time. (laughs) And in that moment... Lots of theology became really clear to me. 
He knew exactly what he was doing. I knew what he was doing, and he knew that I knew it. The truth is, a number of dynamics that appear in the passage before us this morning can be found and were actually fleshed out in that little episode with Steve so many years ago. An episode that was repeated with all my kids in different areas and different ways. But some of the dynamics in that story are going to be the focus of our time together this morning. Dynamics having to do with the law and sin and the human heart. Before we look into that, please pray with me. Let's pray together. Great Father in heaven, would you please guide us, your children, into the truth right now by taking these words that you authored, words that you caused to be written, and then caused to be recognized as your word and preserved as your word, and then caused to be protected amidst a number of great persecutions, and then in time you caused and continue to cause to land effectively on hearts that you cause to be alive spiritually. In other words, this whole thing beginning to end is your doing, and we are at your mercy completely if we're to gain anything from this time. So please make good things happen within us all, lasting things, as we grapple with this passage. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. We are continuing this morning our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, picking up with verse 7 of chapter 7, working through to verse 13 of the same chapter. As I explained last week, we are really in what I would, think, I would say is the third main section of the letter. Uh, after starting out this letter, in, briefly introducing himself and his gospel, centered upon this concept of the righteousness of God, freely bestowed. But after all of that, uh, Paul went on to explain for the next couple of chapters early on, uh, why all people need this righteousness from the outside, a right standing from with God that only God can provide, and it's because all people are unrighteous and sinful and deserving of God's wrath. And that's the bad news of Romans, those first couple of chapters. Following that, Paul spends the next couple of chapters talking about the good news, returning to this subject of the righteousness of God that he introduced briefly, and now he's going to take some time to unpack that concept, to expand on it talking about how we obtain this righteousness, how even Abraham himself was made right with God in a similar fashion through faith and not works, what are some of the blessings and benefits that accompany this righteousness, and the similarities and differences between Adam and Christ and their respective roles in all of that. And then following that, we moved into the third main division where I said uh, we are right now, the letter, which begins, in my view, with verse 1 of chapter 6, and it ends with the last verse of chapter 8. And it is concerned, this third section is concerned in the main with responding to two primary objections to Paul's teaching about the grace of God in the gospel. Chapter 6 deals with the anticipated and probably real criticism that the gospel Paul taught with such a huge emphasis on the grace of God would lead to moral anarchy. That his teaching that gospel with that kind of emphasis on grace was going to cause people to go nuts and, and lead to moral chaos. Um, we've completed our look into that chapter and Paul's response to that, and we're now in the midst of chapter 7, which deals with the second criticism uh, of Paul's teaching, and that, it, it's this, that his teaching disparaged or discredited the law of God, the Mosaic law. And in chapter 8, when we get there, is going to talk about the work of the Spirit and all those who belong to God, who've embraced the gospel truths that Paul's been emphasizing, 
And in that chapter, he's going to show how the indwelling spirit actually is the means by which God sanctifies his people. And he brings them from the inside out rather than the outside in. But he brings them from the inside out into conformity with that to which the law definitely points. But the law cannot bring about externally. Now, um, last week we took our first look at chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, where Paul showed how it is that because of Christ, we are not under law, no longer under law, but we are under grace. And uh, this week we pick up again with chapter 7 and look at the fact that while we are certainly not under law but under grace, this is not due to any defect in the law. There's no defect in the law, but rather due to the presence of indwelling sin that opportunistically makes use of the good, right, and perfect law to promote and multiply sin. So let's listen to the passage. Paul says this, starting at verse 7, What then shall we say, that the law is sin or sinful? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Or exceedingly and obviously sinful is the idea. Well, firstly, as one writer points out, we should be clear, because there's some debate about this, or what Paul is trying to do here in this section of his letter. And it's this, he's writing mainly, he's trying to convey some things about the law of God. He's not trying to answer contemporary questions that people have, uh, modern people have about this passage. Uh, this is not primarily a piece of personal autobiography or a psychological study of the Christian experience. That's not the main thing going on here. There may be elements of that, but that is not the main thing going on here. It is a sustained treatment on the issue of the place of the law for, the, for, for God's people. And Paul knows he has a fairly significant element in his audience, his listeners, that are either Jewish or familiar with the Jewish uh, laws. And, uh, and he knows that they've heard him up to this point in the letter in particular say a lot of things about the law. And Paul has denied that for the Jews, you see, the law was it. The law was central. It was the big deal. And uh, Paul has really denied that in many ways throughout his letter. It's, he's saying it's not the central thing. It's not the big deal. It's important. It's not the big deal you're making it out to be. And uh, he said that, uh, for example, in chapter 2, 27, he said that the, the Jews have broken this law that they make such a big deal out of. He's denied that anyone is justified by the law, chapter 3, verse 20. He's argued that the believer is not under the law, chapter 6, verse 14. He's that the, that the believer has died to the law, chapter 7, verse 4. He's spoken of the sinful passions aroused by the law, chapter 7, verse 5. And so the question naturally arises, where does that leave the law? 
for the Christian. Is the Christian to regard the law as something that's evil and discard it? Is it still God's law? Is it still worth paying attention to? And so in response to those kind of questions that Paul is surely getting from people, he starts out verse 7 by this technique that he uses a lot, asking a rhetorical question. Namely, shall we say that the law is sin or sinful then? Because people are asking that question. It sounds like, Paul, you're saying the law is useless, that it's sinful, that's a bad thing. Because he keeps saying all these things about what it's not, what it doesn't do and it can't accomplish. So shall we say that the law is sinful? And the obvious answer is a very firm no. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, he says. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So he's using an example there. Just picking one, but he's using a key example there with coveting. Paul asserts very strongly that the law is not sin, by which he means it's not sinful. He's got a very high view of the law. And he maintains that high view. Despite what his critics might think, he has never wavered in his view of the law in that way. The law, says Paul, is not sinful, but it is something that reveals sin. The law turns abstract wrongdoing into a personal offense against a holy God. Does that make sense? It turns abstract wrongdoing into a personal offense with a holy God. He's not saying, Paul's not saying here that before the law came there was no sin in the world. We saw in chapter 1 that's not true and in chapter 5. five he's simply saying that sin isn't known as sin apart from the revelation of God. Apart from God saying in essence I don't want you doing this or I do want you doing that. At that point it becomes personal. It's like the illustration I used at the beginning. When I started telling my son no with regard to certain actions, at that point, when I'm telling him, no, don't do that, and then he does it, well, all of a sudden, that action is no longer just this abstract bit of wrongdoing. It's an offense against me now. Because I've told him not to do it. It's personal. It's a disregarding of me. It's a despising of me, actually. Paul illustrates what he's saying with an example. He talks about coveting. Illicitly, jealously, enviously wanting that which does not belong to you but instead belongs to another. Paul says that he would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said do not covet. And again, Paul is not saying, he's not saying that coveting other people's possessions and um, that, that um, he wasn't coveting other people's possessions until the law appeared and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, uh, he started coveting like crazy. Coveting was already there. It was part of the equation, part of the picture. It was already going on in Paul's life and, many of, and everybody else's life, for sure, and their heart. But what Paul is saying is that it wasn't until he became aware that there was a law issued by God that said coveting was out of bounds. It wasn't until that point that he realized that this thing that was already there was already going on, was in fact a sin, a trespass, an offense against the one who established the law in the first place. And in pointing this out, Paul is saying then that that's a good thing. He's saying that this is one of the things that he values about the law. 
It's not sinful at all. In fact, it's the thing that makes sin evident. And it's really helpful in doing that. But then there's a problem that he goes straight to. And the problem's not with the law, but with the law in the hands of our sinful natures. He says this, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Uh, You've heard me say this before, but there's something about a prohibition that incites our sinful natures. Uh, You know, the sign on the commuter train that says, uh, in Melbourne, that says, no spitting seems to magically cause saliva to form in your mouth. The keep off the grass sign in the public park seems to have kind of a tractor beam that pulls us inevitably toward the forbidden lawn. Um, The no running sign at the public pool is easily and casually disregarded. I mean, that's the reality of how we are, isn't it? That's how we in our fallen state truly are. And regarding this, uh, Stott writes, he says, In such cases, the real culprit's not the law, but sin, which is hostile to the law of God. Sin twists the function of the law from revealing and exposing and condemning sin into actually encouraging and even provoking it. Sin uses the law to provoke further sin. That's one way that sin operates in conjunction with the law and takes advantage of the law, which is in itself good and right and holy. And any prohibition is met. This is our standard, right? Any prohibition is typically met in our hearts uh, with an almost instant desire to ignore it. Let's think about the specific example that Paul uses here, covetousness, and ask the question, how or perhaps how else specifically might our sinful selves, our sinful nature, seize the opportunity provided by this commandment to produce even more covetousness? One illustration of this, I think, is seen pretty clearly in the Garden of Eden. There you have Adam and Eve. There's this fruit of a particular tree that they're not to eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so from one angle at least, uh, you have something here that is not theirs. The fruit of that tree is not theirs. It belongs to another. It belongs to God. And at some point, sin, which is not internal to them yet because they haven't fallen, it's external to them, but sin in and through the serpent, Satan, comes to them. It takes this commandment about the fruit and it uses that commandment to produce covetousness telling them that in the day that they eat of the fruit, their eyes will be opened and they will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's a good commandment. Don't eat this fruit. Indeed, at this point in the history of people, it's the only commandment. And this commandment is then in the hands of sin or Satan. It is used to cast doubt on the goodness of God. And the generosity of God. This commandment is used to put God in some kind of negative light. As someone who is territorial. Someone who is withholding things from his children. who Maybe can't always be trusted or relied upon to give them the best thing that they need. And so Eve begins to covet this fruit that's not hers to have. And this knowledge that's not hers to claim. And she reaches for it. And she takes it, and the rest is history, and the rest is tragedy. 
And surely Eve, surely Eve is not the last person who has looked at a particular command of God, an expression of His will for His people, and then been led by sin to use that command, that law, as a launching pad for doubting and questioning the wisdom of God and the kindness of God. Sometimes even the very existence and reality of God. To use the language of Cranfield, surely Eve is not the last person to have looked at a prohibition or command of God. Instead of seeing that prohibition or command as a protective and loving and merciful withholding or requiring of something that it is, seeing it instead as an attack on your freedom on your personal dignity, as a denial of something that one feels that one ought to have, and indeed of something that you believe you have every right to claim and have and expect. And so when we begin to think that way, when we begin to feel that way, then we begin to respond differently to what God has said in a certain area. We begin to feel entitled and even justified in ignoring God in various ways. And so it is that sin, right, through that very means, uses the law and commandments to produce even greater sinfulness within us. Causing us to question the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, the provision of God, which then we feel entitled to ignore what he's saying. Because we have a question. And then if that's not enough, Paul has more to say about this whole matter because it's not only the case that sin uses the law, such as the law against covetousness, for example, to produce even more covetousness. But Paul goes on to say in verse 11 that sin also used the law slash commandment to deceive him. Used the law to deceive him and to kill him is the language that he uses. I was once alive apart from the law, he says, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity, again, through the commandment. This is the second time he's talking about that. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. It seems like Paul here is probably speaking somewhat autobiographically. Uh, He seems to be describing the effect or the result of his coming to understand and embrace the law of God as the law of God. And uh, the thing to be learned... Uh, the thing to be understood and practiced and pursued. Indeed, he may be looking back on this earlier time of his life, which you may may not be familiar with, when Paul was a Pharisee. He was a very uh, conservative, committed, religious man and uh, belonged to this group called the Pharisees. And they had a great zeal for the things of God and for the law of God and for, uh, for the observing of the law of God. And when he speaks of this commandment that promised life, So he's probably thinking about that period of his life and he speaks about this commandment that promised life. He's probably thinking Leviticus 18, 1-5, which says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. 
I am the Lord. This is what Paul tried to do as a Pharisee. To follow God's rules and laws and to see that as a means of securing life and abundance and happiness and peace. And he, like every other Pharisee, he really went after it. He really pursued it. So much so that he called himself once a Pharisee of Pharisees. Which just means he was all about this. He's top of his class, uh, standing head and shoulders above others. But this is where deception, this is the point where deception began to creep in for Paul. Uh, Cruz writes this. He says, although the law did hold out a promise of life, as far as Paul is concerned, no one could access what the law promised. In Romans 7.10, then, Paul is saying that while the law given at Sinai promised life to Israel, if she continued to obey it, in fact, it brought death when she failed to do so. And this is what Paul is getting at, I think, when he talks about sin using the law to deceive him. You see, the more he scrupulous and concerned he became about the law, the more he would have been troubled by it. And the more he would have felt the weight of it. The more he would have felt the unremitting nature of it. The relentless nature of it. The exacting nature of attempting to pursue fulfilling this thing flawlessly. And the more he saw the deception of the law seeming to promise something that it could not in itself ever hope to deliver. John Piper, in thinking about this, actually sees two different kinds of deception that are possible by means of the law. He puts it this way. He says, sin takes the law in hand and it kills us with one of two kinds of deception about our future. It either offers hopelessness Relieved by self-indulgence or it offers hopefulness supported by self-righteousness. One by telling you that you can't keep the commandments and you should just be hopeless. The other by telling you that you can and you should be hopeful in yourself and your ability to keep the law. The problem is both of those are lies. Both of those are lies. And to believe either one of them is suicide. So you hear what Piper's saying. He's saying that the law is good. And it is holy. And it is perfect. But in the hands of sin, it can be used to deceive us. And kill us. It can kill us with hopelessness. Hopelessness that comes when we have been defeated so many times. By a particular sin. And we feel that there is no way that God can keep forgiving us. There is no way we will ever get better or get a handle on this thing that seems to completely have our number. And so because we keep forgetting we're not under law but under grace. Because our vision for the mercy of God is so tiny. We become overwhelmed and we stop fighting our sin. Instead we just dive right into it because we can't win. And all of that comes because sin is using a good thing like the law for a bad purpose. To beat us down, to oppress us, to convince us that we will never measure up and couldn't possibly still be loved and forgiven by God. Not after all this time. 
Not after so many failures. And on the other end of the spectrum, sin can deceive and kill us with hopefulness, which sounds a little crazy, but it's a certain kind of hopefulness. It's a hopefulness that is grounded in a false belief in one's ability to keep the law in a self-righteous, God-impressing way. And this kind of view is inevitably always a function of a view of the law that is far too shallow, is far too truncated, and which as a consequence is so small that it gives us this false impression of the true state of our heart and it leaves us with this completely inadequate view of the depth of our sin. And as a result, if you don't see much into your heart and you don't see the depth of your sin, and of course you can be foolishly optimistic about your ability to impress God with your righteousness. Because you have no earthly idea how desperate your heart is and how wicked it is. So what's the remedy? The remedy is die to the law and live to God through the crucified and risen Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the remedy. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Romans 1.16 says that. It is the only message in the world that gives hope to both the ungodly, self-indulgent people and the ungodly, self-righteous people. It says to the hopeless, self-indulgent, there is hope for you because through your, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Because God will forgive you for Christ's sake For Christ's sake, he'll forgive you if you receive him as a treasured gift and trust him. And the gospel says to the hopeful, self-righteous people that there is true hope for you because though your righteousness be as filthy rags, these things that you think are so impressive to God are not at all impressive to him. The perfect obedience of Jesus, which actually is impressive to him, will be credited to your account if you receive him as a treasured gift and trust him. A lot to think about there in these verses. To a lot to understand about the mechanics of how uh, sin and the law and our hearts, how that all works together, um, how we can become beaten up and oppressed by these things. But I would encourage you to be... Uh, to become a student of your soul on these things. Because that is the only place, way that you will be led again and again to the gospel, to find the hope. And the better student you are of your own soul, the more helpful you will be to your brothers and sisters in Christ to help them deal with their hearts. If you've gotten into the the, the trenches of your own heart and dealt with these things and you are wrestling with them and you see the way that sin uh, is so deceptive and sin takes even a good thing like the law and can use the law to destroy us. Become a student of your soul. Become a physician of your own soul in that way, if I could use that language. Because that is the thing that will lead you again and again to the gospel and it will make you useful for the gospel in the lives of other people. Let's pray.
Father, as we continue to look at these things in the weeks ahead, ways that Paul talks about the wrestlings, the internal wrestlings of the heart, um, help us to get encouragement from seeing that it's not just us, that um, this crazy battle and warfare that goes on inside us all the time that feels so isolating makes us feel like nobody deals with this the way that I deal with it. Nobody is as confused or as messed up as me. Uh, Father, I pray that through this time we'll come to discover that, that uh, in fact, everybody is as messed up and as, as we are in these areas. I pray, Father, that you'll show us that that is a large fraternity or sorority or whatever language you want to use to which we all belong because of Adam. And Father, I pray that ultimately... Uh, even though it, this, as we uh, trudge through this together, it will reveal some hard things. It will also reveal some good and hopeful and encouraging things. And I pray, Father, that we will um, learn to, to walk through this together, that we will, as we do it, as we think through these matters, and, uh, think, and see the way that Paul wrestled with his own heart, uh, I pray, Father, that we would do that with our eyes open to those around us to find ways that not only we can be helped ourselves, but be a help to one another, uh, to be um, a true community in that way, to be true encouragers in that way. And, uh, Father, that you would use this church acting like that with each other to make all of us a little bit more like Jesus this year than we were last year. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Those who are taking up the morning offering to come forward will receive that at this time. And uh, these funds are used to support the work of this church and a number of ministries through this church.